Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see you all. Mary and I uh, both uh, went to high school in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, by the way, we're going down there this coming weekend. I'm speaking at the uh, 50th anniversary commencement for Westminster Academy, which is the Christian school that was uh, established by uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church had a big uh, impact on my life. I preached at Coral Ridge just a matter of a few months ago. Now going back to do the 50th anniversary of the school, I'm proud to accompany Mary, who's going to be the alumnus of the year. It was valedictorian of one of the early classes there, so I'm glad you're going back. The, the point I'm raising is that uh, South Florida, when we were growing up in the 70s, church life was very interesting because it was uh, seasonal. And so we, we had a, it was a big church, very big church, and we had, you know, full sanctuary uh, for the winter. The things thinned out as soon as the snowbirds went home to Michigan. And uh, our snowbirds go everywhere. They're schoolbirds. Our schoolbirds go all over the place, but you can sure see when they have flown the nest. And uh, we pray the Lord's protection over them. They have great, uh, great time doing, some of them doing mission work and other things, some of them earning money, and some of them just seeing mom and dad. But in any event, it's a good thing. But it's a greater thing to get to study the Word of God together. So this morning, we are going to be turning to Leviticus chapter 20. And uh, as you are turning to Leviticus chapter 20, we remind ourselves that when last we were together in Leviticus chapter 19, we are in this new section of the book of Leviticus, which is uh, a section largely of law for the people, but uh, as, as a holy people. The, the, the issue is, as we saw in Leviticus 19, where you have the statement that we had heard already in the book of Leviticus that God is holy, therefore his people are to be holy. Then uh, we also saw another echo of scripture where we saw where the Lord tells Moses to tell the people that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. One of the interesting things about Leviticus, as we shall see in Leviticus 20, is that at first glance, or at first hearing, it sounds often very repetitious. But the repetition is for a purpose, we can see, because in every repetition, there is generally an elaboration, an elaboration that makes sense after something else had to be said. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 20, and we'll be looking, first of all, at a truly shocking passage. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him and whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. 
Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his mother or his father shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. And we're going to continue reading because I want to make a larger point that will become clear in the larger context. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and she shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made her naked. He has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among her people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. It's a horrific passage, let's just face it. Absolutely horrific. An awful lot of capital punishment called for here. And it's capital punishment, it's the death of those guilty of these sins that is the addition to what we saw. Now we see the consequence of these sins. Go back just a couple of chapters to Leviticus 18, and you see many of the same commandments about adultery, fornication, sexual relations that are absolutely illicit. Now the sanction comes with them. But it's interesting that what comes before the sexual immorality is Molech. Now at this point, I'm going to repeat just a couple of things I'd said far earlier in the book of Leviticus, just to kind of set the stage again for what's going on here. We're also going to use our imaginations in a necessary way, just to try to understand why God spoke to Moses, told Moses to speak to the people these laws and commandments. Now you look at this, the entire passage that we've read from Leviticus chapter 20, you say, why would this need to be repeated? I mean, it's not like we didn't hear it the first time. It's not like there was a lack of specificity the first time. You know, right down to your, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter or even your uncle's wife. We understand the need for the definition because as human beings, as sinners, we, we desperately need definition. When, for instance, the first commandment given in Leviticus in this line says that you're not to, to have sexual relations with a close kin or a close relative. Well, you understand the issue. 
God better define what a close, close relative is. And he does. But before that, we have the passage about Molech. I think I've told you before that one of the most controversial books ever published by the Southern Baptist Convention, a book that was recalled because of concerns about this book. The publisher was then known as Broadman Press. And it published a book it did not believe was going to be controversial. But it was controversial, so much so that it was dropped and uh, those that had it were uh, requested to send it back to Nashville. I had it. I didn't send it back. It was a book primarily intended for church libraries, and that tells you something uh, different. That I hadn't really thought much about this until this week, preparing to speak on this. A church library used to be an extremely common uh, resource for churches. It used to be very important. Uh, the, the library at my home church in Lakeland was, uh, was very well funded. It was in a prominent place. The library that uh, existed in my, the church of my teenage years. Again, very prominent, very well used. I used it a lot. I was in a church just this past Sunday in South Carolina, reminded me of being home. Uh, the church had a large library, although it, it didn't look exactly like the church library I grew up in, any more than the, say, university library it looks just like the library that I used at the time. Lots of computers and other things. But it is the digital revolution that changed everything. That church library used to be a resource. And by the way, the Southern Baptist Convention used to have what was called the key church planning program so that uh, a church was told you need this and you need that. You need a nursery. You also need a library. It was all just a part of the kind of standardization of what a church needs. Broadman Press was the publisher of the Sunday School Board as it was known then. And uh, it published probably half the books that ended up in a Southern Baptist Church library. And a lot of it was church resources and commentaries on Bible books for Sunday school teachers to use and things like that. But in the, the early, uh, I, I guess it was actually the late 70s or the very early 80s, the, the Southern Baptist Convention Sunday School Board published an illustrated uh, Bible backgrounds book for the Old and New Testaments. It was like a coffee table book. It was pretty big. It was not particularly well done. No color plates. Everything was black and white. But black and white's all you needed. The book turned out to be the biggest hit for 13-year-old boys the church library had ever had. It is because it was a sex education package as a Bible dictionary. Let's just say the photographic dictionary was mind-blowing. For one thing, it just points to something we need to think about. And, and this is helpful to us, I just, just, just to think about it for a minute. Let's do, let's do some religious anthropology for a few minutes. We're, we're going we're gonna to do a theological critique. But first, let's just do the National Geographic look at the problem. If you think about idolatry, what do peoples idolize? I mean, if you're going to have an idol... And remember, the, the, the Bible defines idols in, in it's, it's any visual representation, but they'll talk about idols of wood or stone in, in particular. And, and, and they, they will talk about uh, you know, idols that, uh, that have personality. Often the idols have names. If you go back to some of the early anthropologists of the late 19th and 20th centuries, they, they, of course, they're just, first of all, anthropology was started as a godless discipline. It, it actually was. So it was sociology. Sociology, 
by August Comte was established as, a, as a, a, an intellectual discipline separate from the church to explain human social behavior without reference to God. That's what August Comte called for. Anthropology, very similar. It was started by people who were very early in pushing for a secular worldview. Religion, we don't care if it's true or not. We, we don't believe, frankly, frankly, it can be true, basically, is the operational worldview. But, but nonetheless, people are religious. Let's look at religion as an artifact of anthropos. Just humanity evidently does this. So just as we think about idols, you think about the idols in the scripture, what do you idolize? In other words, what do you do? You say, if someone assigns you, say you've got some demented pagan school assignment to develop an idol, what are you going to do? Now, Freud would say, whatever you do, it comes back as either you or your deepest fear. There you go. But who is it? Who, who are you going to do? So whatever. So it turns out anthropologically, and the Bible does its own form of kind of a theological anthropology here. If you are going to create an idol, you create an idol about either your want or your need. That's it. Either you want or your need. And so one of the things that the idols were in control of were, were harvests. You need a harvest because otherwise you're going to starve. So you would have, and what's connected to harvest? Usually weather, usually weather. So, you know, it's a lack of rain that explains the lack of a harvest more than anything else. And, and yet it was also the case that, I mean, we're talking about people who know that a seed is put into the ground. If it's watered, it sprouts, it eventually brings forth a harvest. No one knows how the seed does this. There's, there's no modern botany involved. And so you pray that the seed will explode with life. And, and it, you just think the entire process of getting from a seed to a harvest, you sacralize that and you need an idol for that. Maybe a couple of idols for that, but Baal who is, not just an idol in the Old Testament, but actually kind of the father of idols. And that's why by the time you get to 1 Kings, uh, Elijah will cry out against not just Baal, but also the Baals. In other words, plural. And you say, well, what is that, just a lot of Baal idols? No, there were, it, you would take Baal and, and it would hyphenate it. Uh, in, 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 the, uh, in, in the language. So it would be all this, but all that, sometimes assigned to a place, sometimes assigned to a need. But all was thought to speak in the thunder, you know, the thunder. So this is rain. He's bringing rain. And so you want to hear but all speak. And so you make sacrifices. Behold the sacrifices for a minute. We'll get to that. You, you want Baal happy, right? Because Baal, if he's happy, brings you rain, and the rain brings you harvest. Well, you have to have food. You have to have some other things, such as security. And, and so uh, Baal also was given the job of, of security. But again, it would often be a hyphenated Baal. It would be a particular Baal who would be given this. And by the way, it's a, the male-female distinction is extremely clear, especially in the ancient Near East, but throughout most, most cultures as well. But something else you need is fertility. You desperately need fertility. And you need fertility in two ways. You need fertility for your, your animals, and you need fertility for your family. Okay. So Baal would be made to look powerful because he was the, after all, he spoke through the thunder. And so, and the, the Asherah are the female is the female deity and are the female deities because the, the Hebrew it'll be both singular and plural with the Asherah as well and or the Ostaroth you also see but uh, let's put it this way the reason why that Bible encyclopedia was so interesting was because of the fertility aspect 
Because if you are going to make an idol, and it is going to be an idol of potency or fertility or reproduction, you're going to put that in the idol, on the idol. You can just look at some of the, I'm not inviting you to do this, but you can just look at any of these Bible encyclopedias and the male potency is uh, exaggerated, grossly exaggerated. Uh, the female, the same way. The, the, the female uh, idolatry was sexual, sometimes pelvic, but it was more often maternalized. So you would see the female deities with like uh, 60 breasts because it's the ability to feed. And you think about the, the uh, baby uh, formula shortage right now and the panic, you know, the baby formula shortage. The panic in the ancient world was a woman, either a, the mother died, so the baby does not have a mother because so many women died in childbirth, or the woman was unable to nurse. And there wasn't any alternative back then, and so you would have a starving baby. And so this, you, you, your needs, your fears, your wants, they get, they get, they get turned to this idol. But there's something missing. And you say, well, that would explain an awful lot of what comes later. That would explain the Baals and the Asherah. But this passage doesn't begin with wants or needs uh, insofar as you're talking about reproduction, as you're talking about crops, you know, the things that just would happen all the time uh, and, and without which you can't have society, you can't feed your family. We understand that. Why Molech? The very first passage here in, in Leviticus 20, it isn't about an idol that would promise to feed you. It's not about a, an idol that would promise rain. It's not about an idol that would promise fertility and fecundity and lactation. What does Molech promise? This was something that tripped up the early religious anthropologists. What do you do with this? What, what, do, what do you do with Molech? What do you do with a number of other idols, not only in Canaan or, or in... Uh, the ancient Near East, but elsewhere. What need or what fear is represented in this horrifying idol known as Molech to which people sacrificed children? What, what does Molech demand? What, what could Molech provide? So important for us to understand this. Forgiveness of sins. Relief from wrong. Molech demanded a sacrifice in order to placate his wrath. Molech, if unplacated, meant that an, a nation's warriors would be weak. It would fall. Molech, if unplacated, meant that Horrible diseases may come to the people. Horrible things would happen. Why? Because the people have done horrible things. The, the, the people are impure. The people are imperfect. Now, there's a lot going on here. Let's not pass it. Let's, let's think about this for a moment. This is common grace, first of all. We're made in God's image as moral creatures. And this means that the religious impulse, that these early religious anthropologists are trying to understand, it's real. 
Now, they saw it as just a cultural or even perhaps even structural psychiatric existence, something that exists because evidently in the human psyche and the structures of thought, some of them were actually called structuralists, by the way. It's about the structures of human thinking and the structures of civilization gives an indication that to be human is to have this common need for atonement, common, this common urge for being right with, of course, the early anthropologists would all just say, a non-existent deity. So Freud, by the way, would come along later, and, and of course, Freud described himself as godless, and Freud would come along saying, you know, this, this, is, this is what happens, this is the human psyche, this is what society does to the human being, and of course, he would define this as psychosis, but let's go back long before Freud. The peoples of Canaan understood that the gods are not happy. You have to placate God. It's horrifying. So let's, let's, let's do, again, a little religious anthropology. So let's, let's solve the problem. Let's solve the problem. Okay, so you take the Aztecs, the Incas in Mesoamerica, and we have all the evidence of the altars, and just even in recent days, headlines about archaeological discoveries by accident of a massive number of bodies evidently sacrificed alive, men and women, there in the Mesoamerican religious system. And, and now you have this. Okay, there are two categories of people who just might qualify to be sacrificed. Think with me. You want, you, you're going to sacrifice someone to the gods. You've got to find the most innocent possible, right? Right, the most innocent possible. Who might they be? And by the way, this was not always, in other words, this is not an ironclad rule because one of the other things we know, especially from Mesoamerica, is that when you conquered a people, you might sacrifice some of their warriors who are older because this, again, is just a, a kind of a tribute to the god for giving them victory. But in general, you're looking for innocence. So if you're looking for innocence, where are you going to look? Where are you going to look? You've got to look young. You've got to look younger. You've got to keep looking younger you eventually sacrifice children, very young children, because you ascribe to them innocence, even babies or infants. Like I mentioned to you, there's archeological evidence from places like what is now Syria, in, in, in which it's indicated that you find burned bones of very young children, and one thing that's often kind of common is that their femurs are broken so that they could not crawl out of the fire. Just horrifying beyond words. Look at the language that the Lord speaks to Moses here. And I want to offer to you that one of the reasons it's shocking is because God doesn't say up front, this is shocking. God doesn't say to Moses, I know they've never heard of this. God actually says, any man of Israel who does this is to be put to death. This is, this is a very real issue. It's a very real threat. Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Gives any of his children to Molech. Uh, you, you may have another translation that translates it just a little bit different. Any of his seed. But well, that doesn't mean his seed prior to conception it means his seed as in abraham's seed being his descendants anyone who anyone who gives of his children 
to Molech. And, and again, the way that Molech was placated is that there would be a festival or a cultus, there would be a, a, a religious event in which Molech would often be, it is now believed, in the shape of an oven. It would be something like a bull with horns shaped into an oven. And this idol would devour children and their, their bodies would be burned. One of the things that shows us is that human beings really do know that we're sinners. We really do know that. We might try to find any number of ways to evade that or redefine that, but we really do know that we're sinners. These ancient Canaanites were not wrong in believing that they needed, above all, atonement. They're horrifyingly wrong in believing that what God wanted was the death and burning of their children. This will come up again and again and again and again and again. And just if, if you need a contrast, just remember that, that the writers of the Gospels, inspired by the New Testament, by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, will give us echoes of so many things, as will the prophets, especially the classic 8th century prophets of Israel. They, they will make, you know, I don't want your children! When God says, I don't want your children, he doesn't mean he, he doesn't want them, you know, as part of the covenant of people. It means he doesn't want them dead. He does not want their sacrifice. When Jesus says, suffer not the little children, but let them come unto me. And the children came unto Jesus. It's, again, it's a contrasting picture and a radical contrast. How does God want our children? He wants our children knowing Jesus, being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But you look at this and you recognize everything the Canaanites so urgently needed such that they would create an idol and would sacrifice to it and would sacrifice their children to it. Everything they needed was real. They weren't wrong in what they need. They were just horrifyingly wrong in how they thought it could come about. The prophet Isaiah will come along and lampoon this. The prophet Isaiah is, a, of course, the court prophet, the most courtly of the prophets, but he can come back with sarcasm that would make George Carlin's head spin. You know, he talks about a man who, who, who carves a tree, he, he cuts it in half, with half of it he does what's sensically roasts a roast. I love that in the Hebrew. It actually says he roasts a roast. What else would you do to a roast? Wouldn't work to fry a roast. you got to roast a roast. He roast a roast. And yet with the other half of it, he, he does what's insane. He carves it into the shape of a man and he bows down to it. And, uh, you know, Isaiah says, he, he, he tells himself a lie. He doesn't even have the sense to look at what's in his hand and say, I have a lie in my hand. But, but that's just the primal urge. So look, idolatry is a much closer danger than we'd like to think because it's basically the transference of, of, of what, what is God's power alone, the transference of affection and the transference of attention to something or someone else who can provide that, but of course who can't. But a part of the fallenness of idolatry is that it's horror comes out in its logic. 
And that's why you, in Mesoamerica you find so many of these pyramids or so many human sacrifices took place. This is where the logic leads you. I mean, eventually, because guess what? You don't stop sinning. And, and, and guess what? Next year you need rain too in order to have the crop. So it's this cycle of never-ending idolatrous sacrifice. Child after child after child. And again, innocence is the issue. And, you know, we're not getting into an argument about the innocence of children theologically defined because we're Christians and we'll define that biblically. They're little sinners from the moment of their conception. But let's face it, they are innocent of conscious sin. And especially as they're very young, they're still little sinners. But you know what? They are absolutely dependent and they are not yet what we would classify as full moral agents. And so that you can understand why this would be why they would, but there's another logic here, and the, the other logic comes almost immediately because you say, I know some of you are shocked, you say, boy, we just had all this sex stuff two chapters ago, why is it back? It's back. Two reasons, Leviticus 20. First of all, because the penalty is made very clear and specific, but more importantly, it's tied to idolatry is made very clear. Because you will also idolize sexual potency and you will idolize fertility and you will eventually idolize sex. And so the context of these particular sins, especially when it comes to, to, to some uh, specific references that we will find throughout the book of Leviticus when it comes to sexual activity, there are a couple of things that come to the fore and, and one of them is cultic prostitution. And again, we've talked about this, it comes up in the Bible, you know, Israel cannot do what the Canaanites do under every evergreen tree, <laughs> okay? I can remember reading that as a kid and thinking, what in the world is that? That was one of the texts, by the way, that the Puritans used as to why we should not have Christmas trees. No kidding. Uh, uh, is because you don't bring that in. Because the evergreen tree was also a symbol of fertility and of life because it didn't, it didn't turn brown. It was evergreen. Evergreen groves is where the sacred prostitution took place. And the prostitutes would run out into the groves. And then those who were involved in the other prostitution would follow them. And Israel was told to stay out of those groves. Again, you can just understand. Evergreen tree, you can do the math. You can just even visually understand why, why this could get so confused. There is one other issue. That, uh, that also comes up, and, and it shows up in this passage in verses 8 and following. If a man turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So verses 6 and following references another primal issue that shows up in idolatry that is also clearly condemned and astoundingly clarified here. The word necromancer uh, has to do with someone trying to conjure up the spirits of the dead, sometimes with talismans of the dead. But the point here is, or an evil, uh, it says here a spirit, Israel's going to have nothing to do with this. Uh, you might say it's just pagan, the demonic. Uh, that entire world of evil spirits and conjuring up the spirits of the dead that is associated with paganism and idolatry. But it's, it's also something else. This is we're doing our little experiment in biblical anthropology here. The other thing 
that becomes totemized, to use Freud's language, is death. Where do the dead go? Uh, due to another project that I'm doing and writing right now, I, uh, I had reason to uh, be looking <clears throat> at uh, Madame Blavatsky. Some of you may know that name from history. Um, she was a medium. She was a, she was a fraud, of course. Uh, she's, the, she's the source of so much of what became the New Age movement. But she's also the source of so much of uh, American and English fascination with things Asian Hindu. Um, she's the one who was more responsible than anyone else for bringing a lot of Hinduism into... She, she officially tried to merge a certain Christian kind of uh, ethos with, uh, with Hinduism and to sell it back to Western nations. She became, again, notorious person, as you would expect, as is almost true for almost every cult leader, you know, involved in just about every sin you can imagine. But enormously influential, so much that she, she influenced people from British prime ministers to the faculty at Harvard, including William James, you know, the, the, the famous professor who started psychology at Harvard. In other words, all this primal idolatry stuff is a lot closer than you might like to think. And Freud was absolutely fascinated with it. But uh, you, you look at this and, uh, and you recognize that the big power here is the power to bring back the dead. And, and that's where the seance came. And, and, you know, you've seen this because by the time, by the time, you know, this stuff gets filtered down in American history, it shows up in Mayberry, right? So, I mean, eventually you get a black and white television comedy about some kind of fraudulent person who comes along with a crystal ball, you know, to bring up people. What does that show? Another primal need is to know where our people are. It, it is to know the disposition of the dead. And there is a sense, which again, Freud would say, it's just a misconstrual based upon a primal urge for existence beyond mortal existence. We, we, we want to hear the voices of our patriarchs. We, we want to hear the voices of those dead. We want the reassurance that there is something other than nothing that follows death. And by the way, the Puritans were right. We do get to hear the dead all the time. We yearn to hear the voices of the dead who yet live. We get to listen to them all the time. Genesis through Revelation. We read the scripture, what we're doing right now, we're hearing the voices of the dead who yet speak. It's a very different thing. Well, if you're going to totemize death, then you're going to have to do something like necromancy. And, and by the way, necromancy, it could get down to all kinds of stuff. It, it would get with death. Like in, in several cultures, and please don't turn this into a cat versus dog thing. But uh, in, some, in some cultures, animals, a species like cats, will be specifically chosen so their bodies are dissected and their organs inspected in order to supposedly read meaning. There it is. Sometimes human bodies would also be desecrated in such a way. The point is Israelists have nothing to do with all of this. Nothing to do with all of this to the point where the, the most in, the, uh, uh, I can't even say that, the, the least consequential punishment in Leviticus 20 is being cut off from your people forever. That's the least 
significant punishment is forever being cut off from the people, never being allowed to be in the fellowship of Israel again. Cut off from family, cut off from tribe, cut off. The most common penalty found in Leviticus chapter 20 is death. And you look at that and you go, well, what? That just seems like such an... I mean, just you know how modern people read this, and this includes too many modern Christians who read this as if this is Israel's judicial sentence. It's not. It's God's judicial sentence handed to Israel. And you say, why? It is because nothing threatens Israel like idolatry. Nothing. And this is one of the recurrent themes of the Old Testament. We think of idolatry. Yeah, you need to avoid it. For Israel, the problem is, shockingly enough, they didn't avoid it. So many times they're seduced by it, whether it is a golden calf. Remember, Aaron is still alive. Some of of Leviticus is God speaking to Moses and to Aaron, or God to speak to Aaron. Aaron, Mr. Golden Calf, is still alive. And yet, what are we being told here? We're being told, if this happens now, Aaron's dead. And all those who participated with him, dead. Which is to say to some of the people who would hear Moses say this, they have already done this and they're being reminded they deserve to die. It's a future warning as well. It's an amazing passage. And yet, how are Christians to deal with this? What are we to do with this? Well, are are we just left with kind of religious anthropology? Boy, this was really, really fascinating stuff. Wow, that encyclopedia had some fascinating photographs to put in. Wow, maybe when we read the Old Testament, we're reminded people used to be like this. One of the big questions is, where did this go? So, So all this, let's just call it Canaanite, because this is directed towards the conquest of Canaan. All this... All this Canaanite paganism, where does it go? 1893 in Chicago. That's where it went. If you want to date certain theological events in world history, one of them should be the date 1893. And the location would be Chicago. And the event would be called the World Parliament of Religions. Now, this is all happening as the age of exploration, or as others say, the age of imperialism is is going on. They have the contact with what anthropologists call the other. You know, we're we're shocked by what we find. You know, the British make their way to India, and as Peter Berger says, you can't turn left or right without turning over a couple of idols. It is a shock to people who had been in an insulated European context, largely shaped by Christianity, to the point that in the Reformed tradition, by the time you get to the 16th century, all the same glasses out of the church out of fear of idolatry. All the, all the crosses have been taken out of the churches because of idolatry. And, and by the way, if people are still shocked, they come to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I point out to them, there is not a cross to be seen on this campus. There is no cross on the top of any of the towers because it's a Puritan impulse. You'll notice the same thing here. This building is a Puritan impulse. The shock of seeing all this idolatry shocked people in the West into saying, we've got to explain this somehow. And so there was also this kind of National Geographic, isn't this fascinating impulse? And there was theological liberalism. So in other words, theological liberalism explains the world parliament of religions. It was 
liberal Protestants who had decided that religion is a thing and Christianity is just a part of that thing. And it's going to be fascinating to see. And so you had theological liberals coming up with things such as a stair-step theory. You know, it's just like, aren't we glad we don't sacrifice children? But aren't they fascinating to watch? You know, we go up a stair step, and, and so, you know, the Christianity is going to be at the top of that, of, of, of that stair step. Or you're going to make the stained glass argument, well, that, Christians can understand that. It is one light shining through a window of different colored glass, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, and Jainism, and you just go down the list, Christianity and Judaism, they're just different colors of glass. It's the same light coming through the glass. Again, this is, you take religion as a thing. Religionus Geschichte is the, is the German word for it. You just, you just take it as religious history. And, and yet, the problem is it doesn't come neutral, does it? It doesn't come neutral. You can't have the world parliaments of religion and then introduce the next guy and say, by the way, I'm the bishop, I'm the Catholic bishop of, uh, of, of London, and it is my glad task to introduce this naked pagan who comes from a backward land. No, you got to say, he's cool. And so that's what happened. The World Parliament of Religions, 1893, you had an entire event, buildings built as a part of the Great Chicago Exposition, in which all these people were presented, and I have in my library the official guide published in 1895 to the World Parliament of Religions, and it's a hoot. That's not the blurb I put on the back of it. <laughs> it's a hoot, Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological <laughs> but, it, but it is a hoot, because you look at this, it's because it is written in this Western condescension, as in, this is really freaky, but we're glad they've come, sort of. Just lock up your daughters. <laughs> it's just fascinating. But they also found out after this that about half of the supposed pagans they had brought were frauds. And, and so like a lot of them, and, and a natural number of them ended up coming from like Turkey, where they were close enough to Asia they could act like, you know, just... This is all kinds of stuff. And then swamis coming from, that's what they were called. They, they called themselves, you know, coming from India and elsewhere. But anyway, there were, there were some real representations of Buddhism and other things. And by the way, is Buddhism a religion or not? They don't believe in God. Classical Buddhism is, is non-theistic. So what, what do you do with that? Um, does that belong to the world part of the religions? Well, sure, because we want a big exposition. So come, we'll just define find it broadly 1893 but you look at it and you realize what you have to do if you're going to bring the world parliament of religions together in chicago in 1893 and if you're going to tell people everything's cool then you can't tell them very much about what's actually going on here oh yeah well there's child sacrifice over here and oh yeah there's the burning of bodies in the ganges you know over there and oh yeah there's the burning of widows alive with their husband's funeral pyre over there. One of the things that you find in Leviticus and in the Bible in general is that the Bible's amazingly blunt. And we need this. It's, a, it's amazingly clear and we need this. How does this get translated now? It gets translated even as secular historians and cultural observers note into the fact that, and, and I was actually reading something last night, and I was very, very glad to find this. It was by Diana Butler Bass, who's very, very liberal. But she's, she's, she, she said something I, I was looking for, and I was able to find it, where my argument is, this is my argument, is that religion's a steady state reality. 
We're, we're, in other words, every, everybody's religious because we're making God's image. So religion is a steady state reality, which is to say the Soviets were just as religious as, say, the Quakers. It's just that the Soviets turned their religion into their religious impulses into a, a, a worship of the Soviet ideal, the new Soviet man. In other words, it, it's all there. And Dinah Butler Bass recently said, looking at the last 20 uh, say years uh, in, in the 21st century said the religious impulses are all still there fully there they're just now translated into other things whether it's uh, yoga which by the way came into the United States in what year oh 1893 um, along with other stuff including some food there's some ethnic food that came in 1893 a lot came in because of that international exposition in the world parliament of religions but, you know, also now, uh, you know, one of the interesting things, she's written some fascinating stuff, by the way, on some of the stuff like Peloton, the religion of Peloton, and uh, e Emily Basilton uh, writing in the New York Times just the last few days, the religion of, uh, of exercise. In other words, the steady state religion, it's all there. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, when you look at Israel's Levitical law, and remember the sacrifices, we talked about how much, how much time is taken in the preparation of and in the, the fulfillment of these sacrifices and, and all this. You say, well, what, what, why is it so thick? Well, it's partly, I think I told you, because I, I, uh, I still remember when I was like 10 and I was in the church building. I've told you this before, I think, and we had an elevator and I was like 10 and I asked the custodian why he pushed the buttons and she said, he said, so you don't. And... Uh, and, and another person who I just heard say out loud when I was about that age, say, our purpose is to keep you so busy doing this, you're not doing something else. Well, that's kind of a good theory in itself. Religion's thick, right? And I mean that as religion. I'm, I'm using the word as a Protestant intentionally. Religion is thick. Partly because if we're not doing that which is right, guess what we're going to be doing? That which is wrong. If our theological impulses, if our spiritual impulses, if our, to use Romans chapter 1 and 2, if our reasonable service is not directed Godward in a way that glorifies Christ, it's going to be directed some way and it's going to be steady state. We're going to be as committed to X or Y as we otherwise would be to Christ. And you ask, where are these idols now? They're everywhere. Look at, look at the, 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 the New York Times Magazine last week cover story about the crisis of surrogacy in Ukraine. And you come to find out that the big crisis is largely people in the United States who have been contracting with women in Ukraine for surrogacy. And, and you can just, you can come up with the math. It's a very unusual situation. Like two men having a baby, that to get a surrogate in Ukraine. You look at this and you realize it's all still there. It's all still there, even in the messy sex parts. So you say, well, isn't this an exhilarating Sunday morning, line by line? When we look at the requirements of the law, we look at the requirements of sacrifice, we often remind ourselves a part of what this text means to us is the glory of Christ in that he accomplished all this for us. A part of what we see in a passage like this as we conclude is that human nature directed in this religious impulse does really, really horrible things. And brothers and sisters left to our own, 
we would do things just this horrible. But we're rescued by Christ. We're rescued by a Savior who is also our Lord and makes total claim of our lives. doesn't say select some of your babies and sacrifice them. He says, let the little children come unto me. It says to Israel, teach your sons so that they will be able to take their place and your daughters in Israel. It's in the New Testament where we are given the picture of discipleship, which isn't thin, it's thick. Partly so that not only we will do those Godward things, but because if we're not doing those Godward things, I'll leave you with this thought. We're doing something else. Something like this. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your candor. Father, I thank you. I thank you explicitly for being so detailed, explicit, and candid with us because, Father, otherwise we just might not see this. Thank you for showing us ugliness in order that we would yearn for and see the beauty of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.